Hey there, everyone. My name's Pat Rothfuss, and I'd like to welcome you to World Builders Weekly, the podcast. Each week, we bring you the best in everything geek, books, board games, interviews with authors, and other notable cool people. Even better, this is all for a good cause, because World Builders is a charity that works to make the world a better place. And we are so glad that you've decided to join us. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of World Builders Weekly. We are very excited to be here. My name is Gray. I'm the executive director of World Builders. I'm Zay. I'm the assistant director. And guess who we have? <laughs> we have the wonderful author, one of the writers of the top 100 fantasies in the world, according to Time magazine, and definitely according to me, Evan Winter. Welcome to our show. Thank you very much to both of you for having me and thank you for World Builders for hosting. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and thank you for that wonderful introduction. <laughs> well, we're gonna be gushing about you in the whole show. But first, as everybody knows, every week we bring you the latest news and treasures and special deals from the market, nerdy tangents and lots of geeks doing good stories because you guys all support us in helping us do that work. And lucky days like today, we get guests like Evan Winter. So this is going to be really, really fun. So we are going to uh, read a bit of your bio, Evan, the, the bio that was sent to us, because it's pretty amazing. Evan Winter is a Canadian um, author of fantasy. His first novel, The Rage of Dragons, was self-published. Orbit Books re-released it and signed Winter to a four-book deal. I didn't know that part, actually. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> Born in England to South American parents, Evan Winter was raised in Africa near the historical territory of his ancestors. He, this, <laughs> the way this is written feels weird because Evan, you're right here. <laughs> so it looks like you always wanted to be a writer. You went to university, attended bars in, in two countries, became a director and a cinematographer who worked and has been viewed more than 500 sorry, a million times online, met a couple con men and the process was threatened by UK mobsters, worked with wonderful A-list celebrities, uh, very talented unknowns, and became a creative director for one of the world's largest infrastructure companies, all before realizing that the words in your head would never write themselves. And I love this, this final line, this, so before you run out of time, you started writing them. Your bio is a movie in and of itself. <laughs> um, uh, I mean, my first question real quick was, of all of that stuff we just heard in the bio, can you confirm the UK mobsters specifically, conmen? <laughs> yes, everything in the bio is absolutely 100% true. And the UK mobster story in a, I think it was an Ask Me Anything on the fantasy subreddit of Reddit, I actually laid out that whole story. So yeah, I think sort of some Google foo might be able to bring it back up if you do like Evan Winter, our fantasy and UK mobsters, it might pop it up or something. I'm not sure. But yes, that was an, an unusual, an unusual time. <laughs> <laughs> we, we actually have our first question for chat, which we'll go with, which is why do you write like you're running out of time? Are the mobsters still after you? Yeah, it's a very good question. Just last night, I was in the shower and I was kind of thinking to myself, it's so easy to fall into this place where each day passes by and the amount of things that I've done in the day don't seem to have really moved the needle that far forward, if, if that's even an actual expression. And so 
I think that I, I definitely want to feel like I'm doing more with each day. It is very hard right now, this year of 2020. It's been very hard to feel as if I'm making a lot of forward movement. But I guess it, life feels so precious to me. And as a father watching a little one grow up, uh, I get to see so many of their experiences and so many of their, and so, and how each new thing that they learn sort of affects them and shapes who they get to be. And I think that I'm very excited to keep having those experiences and to make sure I try and pull as much out of each day as I can. I fail miserably at this all the time, but I'm trying to get better at it. And I think that writing is one of the things that brings me the most joy. And I feel so fortunate to have discovered it. And I, I definitely want to make sure I, I, I write as much as I can and, and try to explore this thing that I love so much. That, that is awesome. I, I should acknowledge that apparently I'm being judged because that was actually a reference to Hamilton, that question. But I frankly, as somebody who also sometimes feels like I'm running out of time, I think I, I like that, that question anyway. Uh, and that's a fantastic answer. I, I agree with you. I'm so happy you said move the needle. Because there are there are some people saying, "Have I made a dent in the universe?" I'm like, "The universe is dented enough. Let's try to move the needle instead. We don't, don't need any more dents." Um, in your bio later on, you said that it's our stories that make us who we are. And I was wondering if you could unpack that. How do you see the stories shaping us and shaping you? In my mind, that's a really big question, and I'll try and sort of break it down as best I'm able. I have a bit of a marketing background, and so often the, what marketing as an industry kind of realizes is that back in the day, they would try and sell people things based on sort of like specs or the thing, or the qualities of the thing, right? Or the mm -hmm. tangible qualities. They'd try and sell you a music player, and they'd say 256 megabytes of space, this kind of processor, this and this and this, buy a Zune now. And then somebody else would come along and figure out a better way of doing it. And they'd say, all the music that defines your life in your pocket, but get an iPod, right? And we see how that works out and who wins that sort of battle. And so marketing quickly sort of started to realize that the narratives, the stories we tell move us so much more than even the tangible facts that actually we should look at and go, well, my logical brain tells me that that is a superior X, Y, or Z. And I think that a lot of the time we don't give stories, even especially fictional ones, the actual true power that they hold, which is they help us understand what's possible, what we should aspire towards. They help us sort of define what good and, and morality is, I think a little bit. And they help us sort of understand what the goals that we maybe should have as we live life. A lot of the time in fantasy, and one of the reasons I fell in love with epic fantasy is that it often tries to, the, the sort of the sub-moral or the, or the overarching kind of moral of, of a lot of fantasy is that when something is wrong with the world, there is power and there is goodness in going out and trying to change that wrongness and, and bring it a bit more in alignment with something that is good. And I think that sometimes you see in some other books and other genres, oftentimes the moral is more, there is something not quite right in the world and it makes you feel as if you're missing something inside. So let's figure out how to better cope with that and make the best possible life within the wrongness. And personally, I connect more with the message that epic fantasy that I see, tend to see more in epic fantasy, which is let's go out and try and see if we can make the world a better place. I have a question here that's that's super related to that. And it's it's kind of about, you know, injustice. And your book talks a lot about rage and mm. um, these kind of like cycles of violence. I think I've, I've heard you mention before. Can you kind of expand a little bit about that and how your book raises those questions and you know a little bit from like a personal perspective and not just within the fantasy realm and world yeah i think that 
the idea of anger and frustration and feeling as if one has no place to put that does feel sort of very much like a, a, a real world issue for a lot of people on the planet where one doesn't necessarily have power either socially or politically and and yet the there are injustices that exist that oftentimes the powerful work to suggest don't even exist at, at all. You know, there's this idea, I mean, one of the things that sort of really bothers me personally, and again, maybe people will disagree, is the concept of equitableness and meritocracy. In, in Western society, there is an incredible emphasis on the idea of meritocracy as being an actual thing that currently exists in society as it, as it currently operates. And I tend not to, given my own lived experience and what I see when I look at you know, research studies around all manner of things, I tend not to see that the outcomes really do most often come from meritocratic processes. Not yet. We're not there yet. And, you know, there's often the idea of, oh, you know, we got to get back to where we are more in a meritocratic society. Well, we never have been. Like, that has not been the case yet. We need to move towards that, but we have never been there. And so I think the idea of, of rage within the context of the story and cycles of violence is an attempt to sort of discuss and explore, for at least for myself, what can be done when things are not as they should be. I guess I'm interested in exploring it from the perspective of someone who has been traditionally oppressed, who comes from a culture that does oppress, and trying to see what ways can that person, who starts with no political power, no social power, what way can they face their society and suggest, you have to change because what we have now is not good enough. Yeah, please read this book, guys, because <laughs> I think sometimes, just to kind of go off of what you just said, Evan, I feel like a lot of times there's these embedded meanings in the story. To me, though, I feel like these questions you're trying to raise, while they do live within this, the story and within the stories, you know, what sort of world building, they're very obvious that you, the way that you've put them there. And it's so easy, especially given our current climate to relate to that. It's just a really, it's just a really special way that you've, you've written things. It doesn't feel so clouded that you have to like, you know, search through Reddit <laughs> to maybe find the undertones of what this person's trying to say. It really does jump out at you, even though it takes place in its, you know, in its particular written setting. But I was want to say like for people in chat, just so you know, I, I read Evan's book back before he was cool. When he, when he was self-published. And I have to say at the time, I was kind of burned out on epic fantasy. I was like the, the whole Eurocentric, oh, you know, this is the one kind of thing going on in over and over again, just really got kind of uh, tiresome to me. And uh, Evan, it was your book that, that really kind of gave new life to my interest in that because you told things in a way and, and you're it was both a, a new thing and there were also like the familiar, like I could stand up and cheer during the fight scenes and be like, oh my God, I can't believe she said that and things like that, which was a, a lot of fun. And that, you, you know, you also worked in music video and I'm just wondering, like you, you write your action scenes really well. Did that influence come from your experience working with video and cinematography or is it just something that came from your own reading? 
Well, th first of all, thank you very much for the very kind words. I, I do appreciate it. And I'm glad you're back deeply, more deeply into, into reading epic fantasy. And uh, yeah, I think that music video and being a director and cinematographer did definitely influence the way I structured the books, the way I outline and why I outline. Because coming from that film background, the most expensive and fraught time in filmmaking is when you're on set. And so everything about the film industry pretty much is about sort of reducing the risk of things going wrong on set. So you front load a lot of the a lot of the prep time, a lot of the time in terms of overall production is front loaded. You try and outline and shot list and sort of really figure out every little last bit of thing that you can so that when you're actually on set, things can have the best chance of running smoothly. And I definitely learned that lesson myself a few times when I'd go on set and I'd have an idea of what I wanted to do, but not the firmest idea. And always, 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 those were the toughest scenes to shoot every time. And I would think, okay, I kind of know where I'm going and I feel comfortable because I know the parts before and the parts after, so I'll be fine. But you go into that scene that you knew you had a looser idea about and it was always a struggle. So I think having learned that lesson from filmmaking, I, I really decided that I'm going to outline when I write. And for me, at least, it helps. I don't think, like, as you know, as we all kind of have heard before, uh, advice is particularly individual in something, in probably most craft things or art things in general, and particularly in writing. So this may not work for everybody, but for me, outlining definitely makes a big difference. And I, and I do think I get that from filmmaking. Now, more specifically to your question, fight scenes and music videos. The funny thing is I don't outline my fight scenes. Uh, that's the one thing I do not outline in the book. I just have a sense of what's what sort of the end outcome will be. And then I just roll into the scene. And those are the, that's the place where I let myself play, where I let myself find each sort of moment within the moment. And yeah, so I don't know why I do it like that, but I think that it gives me something to look forward to as I'm writing when I know a big, huge sort of, you know, energetic conflict moments coming. I know that I don't exactly have a sense of how it's going to play out. And I get to go find out in a way, kind of like the reader does. Like I, I'm kind of in that beat by beat. So, yeah. So, so, so a plotter based on the story arc and a pantser mm -hmm. based on action scenes. Yes. That's nice. Huh. Interesting. And by the way, before I uh, forget to ask, is that a sword over what I think is your right shoulder? <laughs> yeah, yes, it is. Um, okay. <laughs> and it, it is a sword. It is a lovely sword. It is a sword that I purchased at a Ren Fair many years ago because it was so ridiculously huge. I, I use it when I when I wear my special Halloween costume called Overcompensation Man. Oh, nice! So yeah, it is a, it is a it is a sword, and <laughs> it's you know sword is decor. Why not? Yeah, why? Yeah, <laughs> I love but it. Actually, like it. weird weird thing. We found that one of the things that that happened during COVID is that we started selling a lot more swords. I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but yeah. for some reason we've had to like restock our swords twice now. <laughs> more often than uh, yeah. So good, good problem to have. I think. I, I, mean, I, I mean, I guess it, it goes to a good cause. Hopefully, Horror <laughs> Holders is not just for geeks; it's run by geeks. So it's 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 a lot of swords. I have a suit of armor. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't I, mess I have around. A, a Star Trek uh, cosplay uniform. Yeah. <laughs> We do that kind of thing. Okay. We have a good time. <laughs> but I like it. So, wait, no, so, I, so the, the, no, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I have to ask now. So the, uh, you have suits of armor for sale? Is that a thing? No. <laughs> no, no okay. I just own a leather suit of armor. <laughs> oh, okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And Gray's the one that is behind Gray. We don't sell that sword. We we sell a full Estesura from King Killer Chronicles. Yeah, from Pat's books. I, I will share, or will I share? Yeah, I will. I'll just for fun. Oh boy. 
this is kind of a ridiculous sword. Oh, wow. Okay. But it does have, it, it fits the thing because it does have a dragon on it. Le I but love I mean, it. Nice. It, it is, it oh, is pretty ridiculous. Goodness. And I'm one of those people who's like, you know, I don't want to just have play things. I want to have things that, you know, could actually be functional. But this one was given to me for Father's Day by my daughters a long time ago. That's awesome. So, Regardless of how ridiculous it is, it will always have a treasured place in my house. Mm -hmm. <laughs> the chat says, how else are you supposed to defend your home? Exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Think about swords, never run out of ammo. It's true. Um, you know, it's not in the in a Gray and I script here, but I was curious, you know, uh, when it when it comes to transitioning from from self-publication to to being, you know, then taken up by order bits. I know that must be a question you're asked like a billion times, but can you just kind of talk about what it was like going from one to the other? Yeah, yeah, thank you. It was, first of all, it was a complete surprise to me. I did not approach Orbit and I was in the very sort of right place, right time kind of scenario where the senior editor that acquired the book, Breet Feed, ended up reading it when it was self-published, found a way to contact me, got in touch, and we initially just had like a feeling out conversation, you know, just, I think just maybe for her to make sure that I was like somewhat reasonable, maybe, I don't know. <laughs> but we had a, a good talk and then a little bit later she called back and said, we're hoping to make an offer on the series. And uh, so you probably need to find an agent. So then I, I had to go uh, find an agent, which is a lot easier when there's already an offer on the table. So I, I did get to avoid a lot of the, the harder parts of trying to get published. And I very much have an appreciation of the fact that I kind of didn't have to go through uh, the querying process, the agenting process, and then trying to go out uh, on submissions and, and get the book sort of acquired. So I had it easier in that respect. And then my biggest concern coming into the deal was actually, I just didn't know how much a traditional publisher would want to change the story I was trying to tell. I think that's sort of a big kind of idea around what happens when, you know, you work with any sort of big corporation with, with intellectual property is they then have a lot of ideas about what you should be doing with that intellectual property. And again, having never worked in massive scale filmmaking, maybe that's the case there. I don't know. But I can say that with Orbit, that has not been the case at all. And that was my biggest concern. I was like, when I get back these notes, these editing notes, what's it going to be like? Are they going to say, you know, chop out this whole story section, change this. Maybe you can de-emphasize the rage and de you know, what I didn't know. And I guess I took what to me felt like a big risk, but I, I wanted to have that level of support. I wanted the books to be able to be in bookstores and libraries. I wrote half the Rage of Dragons in a library. So I wanted it to very, very much to be in libraries. But when I got my notes back from Breit, Again, this is my singular experience. I hope it's everyone else's experience, but in my experience, every single note was something that made a lot of sense to me and made a lot of sense to the story. There was never any attempt to change, divert, or alter the story I was telling. There was only the attempt to help me tell the story I was already telling better. So it has been a, a great experience for me so far. And again, with the notes that I got from my editor, it was always things that I couldn't even deny, like, I couldn't be like, no, what are you talking about? It was always stuff where I'm like, yeah, I see your point. Like, you're right. That doesn't quite make sense. Or, you know, I do need to talk about that more so that you get why this is happening. Yeah. So it's been a very positive experience so far. And I've said that I've said this before, but it, it bears repeating. The people that I've had the chance to meet and just work with at Orbit so far have been absolutely excellent. Like they are all so passionate about books, about science fiction and fantasy and it is their job. They have to do it to pay rents or mortgages, and, you know, feed their families. 
but they very much seem as if they're there because they love what they're doing. And so it's made doing the work with them so much uh, more fulfilling. And yeah, I've had a great time and and hope to continue uh, in that vein, I guess. That's awesome. Would you still think though, I feel like Gray is like, can you just stop asking? No, no, no. (laughs) Would you still, you know, knowing kind of like the path that you've taken, Mm -hmm. maybe five years ago, you know, the internet was different and self-publication maybe wasn't kind of the same thing it is now. Do you, would it be something that you'd, you'd consider you know, doing again, had you not been picked up or would you recommend that path for like people that are trying to, you know, maybe do publication? I would absolutely unequivocally recommend it. I think that there are so many sort of, I mean, there were so many ideas about what self-publishing was or is that weren't necessarily accurate and they're falling away now, but there still are a lot of misconceptions. With self-publishing, you do have to run your own little business, like your own little super tiny publishing house, which means that you have to uh, figure out how to deal with the contract so that you can you know, uh, purchase cover art right, from a, a freelance contractor who you have to be able to deal with and, and, and you know, figure out intellectual property rights there. Uh, you have to be able to fill out a bunch of forms, do administration, figure out how to file and and deal with taxes and all the rest. And I'm talking about the boring things because they are a a significant part about making that work. Now, for the good things, you have a lot of control um, over the way that the the, the books uh, come out in terms of cover, titling, and everything else. You have a lot of control over the pace at which the books come out that you might not otherwise have. And also, you have because of the way that the royalty split works in self-publishing, you can then also dive into online ads where you can actually target much more cleanly the type of reader that you think will appreciate the type of story that you're telling. Now, this goes into my own sort of like little beliefs about publishing and storytelling now. But what I'm going to say is that the pool of readers is, for all practical purposes, basically infinite. You see that in the massive self-publishing boom of romance. You see that in the creation of almost an entirely new genre of, of, of fantasy and lit RPG. And there are readers out there for almost every type of story. The issue is that for, again, all in my opinion, that for larger publishers, it's hard for them to sort of micro-target and it's hard for them then to also make enough of a profit from some of these, what are smaller niches for them, but absolutely massive ones for an independent publisher. So if you're an independent publisher and you can use some of the online tools to sort of find those readers, you can find a pool of people that will love your work, that is completely deep enough to sustain you and make it so that you make a living wage, and you can have an incredibly satisfying career that way. So there's absolutely, in my mind, nothing wrong with self-publishing, and I feel very fortunate to have had the opportunities to start there. I will say one of the things that you also do really well is that I, I sign up for a lot of newsletters that I would then just kind of like, oh, you know, I, I already know about this book or they're not saying anything new. Your newsletters make me feel like I, I knew you. Like it was oh. like I was getting an email from a friend who was excited about his journey of self-publishing. And, and you would write things like, you know, here's the cover and, you know, these things and this exciting thing here. And I really looked forward to it. And it was interesting because in I reflect back on it. It was because you took us on a story, like you made us a part of your story of this whole journey, as opposed to just, you know, laying it out and saying, and by the way, buy this kind of thing. And you also, if I remember right, you also recommended other people's books in your newsletter and, and sort of said, Hey, you know, I know you're waiting for my book, but while you're waiting, try this one. This is really nice. And nothing comes to mind at the moment, but I know that I've 
followed some of those suggestions and discovered some great new articles. And there was kind of a uh, rising tide lifts all boats kind of feel mm -hmm. to it. You know, like, hey, you know, I'm doing okay, but by the way, you might want to help out this person by buying their book. And I thought that whole that whole attitude just made it. It makes me want to support your work, you know, because it, it, it's part of being something good. So, yeah, that was really really neatly done. Oh, thank you. You know what? I, I really enjoyed being able to do it that way and sort of like just try to take people on the journey with me. And I feel it's unfortunate because recently I haven't sent out as many newsletters. And part of it's because 2020 has been a tough year for me to read. Like I've been struggling to read as much. And it's been really important to me that, that going forward as well, every book that I recommend is something that I've read and loved. I, I want to sort of develop a relationship with people who are seeing those emails where they go, you know, I trust Evan's opinion. And maybe I don't always agree with him, but I believe that he really likes this. So maybe I'll give it a try. And so I very much want to read everything uh, that I recommend. And just my reading has fallen off a cliff. So I'm trying to get back on the horse and I'm doing some audiobooks now and doing some physical reading. So just trying to, to get myself back where I want to be as a reader as well. I think 2020, if anything, should be a year of understanding that no one <laughs> is in a place where they can function like they used mm -hmm. to. We're mm -hmm. all in a super weird place. Every other email is like, I understand. <laughs> but yeah, um, kind of along the the same lines of questions, Time named you, named your novel one of the 100 best fantasies. When that happened, did you see like a significant change immediately or? Yeah, no, that's, that's a really good question. And I think what ends up happening with a lot of those kind of sort of accolades, if one is fortunate enough to get them, is that the change is, 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 more, is more subtle, at least when I get a, a really positive review from a, 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 uh, you know, a reviewer that has a massive platform, there's typically a quick spike and then kind of like a quick dive and sort of, a, and then it sort of resets your normal. So if, if baseline was here, after that baseline goes up, it's now here. So it's not, a, a, you don't stay at a massive new spike. You just, your baseline level tends to go up a little bit. So with the, the Time Magazine thing, I, I sort of saw the same thing. It creates sort of a new baseline where there's just that much more discoverability for the book. And, and again, I'm going to dive into more of uh, Evan's crackpot theories here. But, <laughs> but um, as I take you on this particular journey, there are probably around two, including self-publishing books, self-published books, there are probably about 2,000 new books published every single day. And so the major issue with books nowadays, given that there is a functionally infinite audience, really, for at least insofar as to su sustain and support any individual author, the real issue is discoverability. The real issue for most new, new books is visibility. And so a lot of those accolades, a lot of these kind of things, what they tend to help do is they make it so that people can notice your book more easily. And then they hopefully, if they like what they hear, give it a shot. So yeah, definitely, and it's a great question. With the Time Magazine sort of accolade, there's an initial spike and it falls back down, but it doesn't fall back down to the previous baseline. There's a new baseline that's sort of created by each of those little things. And I just said little things. It's not a little thing. I was, I, it blew my entire mind when I found out. So let me just clarify that. Um, I, I am, I'm going to read this next question and I'm terrified of, of mispronouncing it. H-O-S-A. Uh, mm. yeah. Zosa. Zosa, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because uh, on the back of Rage of Dragons, uh, Anna Stevens characterized the book as Zosa inspired. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm just wondering, like, when you were talking about all the characters that inspired you, those are mainly from the, the Eurocentric fantasies. So what, mm -hmm. what helped you decide to change the narrative the way you did? And 
if you could talk about how the mythology that you shaped in your books, were there things that you like, oh, I, I wish I could put this in here, but it doesn't fit, or I, I want to, you know, anything that, how, how was that process go? Yeah, okay, thank you for the question. I think that one of the main things that I, I do want to say is that even in terms of the, even in terms of my ancestral background, so much of this, for, for fairly obvious reasons, I guess, is sort of passed down through a little bits of oral tradition and can't completely be sort of verified or, or certified as if you could certify your ancestry anyway, really. But it was very important to me when I started writing to, to then tell stories that sort of reflected some aspect of what I knew or what I'd heard to be uh, a little bit of that ancestry. And that meant for me, like my family, my, my, my parents were born in Guyana in South America. It's considered part of the Caribbean. But I wanted to, because I grew up in, in Africa, in Central Africa and Zambia, I wanted to go back to a place that I remembered growing up. I didn't grow up in Guyana. Uh, I'm part of almost like a, a diaspora of a diaspora. I didn't grow up in, in, in Guyana. I grew up in Zambia, primarily. And that's sort of where, obviously, my ancestry leads back to. And I wanted to tell a story that reflected the landscape, that reflected the type of people I knew, that reflected the sounds of words that were familiar to me in all the names, the places, and that sort of thing. And it's, it's been an interesting journey to do that because I think that sometimes one of the critiques that comes out is, hey, this isn't some reviewers, you know, just online will say, hey, this isn't African enough, you know, and I guess that always feels a bit strange to me because it is as, it is as, as African, it is as, it is as much as I know how to make something feel like what I knew, what my background is, what the stories and culture that has been passed down through me is. And that's what comes out on the page. And that's what was important to me, was to have a story that gets told, that has characters who look like me and my family, whose names sound like the names and sounds. Like my middle name is Olutayo, okay? And a lot of the names in the book are Omehi, Arabang, Dili. <laughs> These are all names that come from, like, you know, again, who we, who we are and who my family is. And it was, again, so, so much of what was important to me was to take the thing that I had loved, the style and type of story that I knew growing up, which often was Eurocentric fantasy, granted, but then to sort of infuse it with some greater part of me, some deeper part of me that I didn't often get to see told in the stories I loved so much. And so that's what I was trying to do. It is a bit of a fusion because so much of what we so much of my history also ends up being a bit of a fusion due to colonization, due to forced migration, you know, due to being part of a diaspora, right? And so that I'm trying to deal with all of those things. And you can hopefully see those themes of colonization and, and oppression and systemic violence. Hopefully you can see all of those things in the book because I'm trying to deal with all of them. And then obviously in a secondary world. Yeah. That's that's such a perspective to hear you say that some people would say it's not African enough when in reality it's just it's kind of you just trying to be true to your story like your mm -hmm. personal story but you know I that's it's just something that made me think <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah the yeah, I mean it go ahead sorry no 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 please I I was reflecting I mean one of the things about it I you know, one of the ways to capture people's interest is give them something that is just familiar enough that they, you know, are, they, they can relate to something and other things that are surprising and that are unexpected. And I think that that, for, for me and my own personal experience, this book fit very well into that. 
and you know it's a totally different genre in terms of I guess more Afrofuturism what he called but the books of Tochi Onyebuchi the um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. the War Girls and the Rebel Sisters coming out it's the same thing in that you know I'm a big fan of anime and so those books like you have a totally different world and structure and government and things like that that are unfamiliar but they're flying around in giant robots that shoot each other and i'm familiar with that i i know mm-hmm. that and it, it was the it was a great way to to find that and kind of feel like there was this hook to to relate to the characters and i'm sorry to be honest with you it's been a while since i read this book so i wasn't as up on the character's name but the there's there's a a main character the, the soldier in here is it town yeah yeah Tao. yeah i also i i i really found connection in that as well from my own military experience like that whole idea of service and that in that in that respect and duty so i really it was at the end of the same time you create this mystical amazing thing and then there's dragons <laughs> it's like it's like like oh yeah i know dragons that's right okay let's see let's see what his uh evan's take on on dragons are and honestly that's kind of the we, when i got to the end of the book i'm not going to give anything away but it was kind of a Oh shit! <laughs> I can't wait for the next book, and you know, and so that was that was a lot of a lot of fun. Yeah, in this chat they say dragons are always good. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So book two is a recent release. Is there you know anything going into book two that you're particularly excited about? You know, anything you want to say to people to be like, oh, get this book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks for the opportunity to, to pitch book two. No, <laughs> no, but I think in all honesty, book two was a lot of fun to write for me. It was harder in so many, many ways uh, because there's added expectation. There's the added expectation and pressure of a contractually obligated date that I meant to hit in terms of delivery. So there's a lot of extra sort of things that had to happen around book two. But since the very, very beginning of outlining the series and you know, the way that I outline is I, I have an outline for the whole series, all four books. And obviously it gets more vague as I go along and I know the ending very well, but like book, book four has like broad beats mapped out, but not like the super tight little beats all along the way. But I knew enough of book two when I started this whole series that from the beginning when I was writing Rage of Dragons, there were certain scenes that I was just waiting to get to in book two and getting to them, like I write in order. When I hit those scenes and I was on them and I could see them on the outline, I'm like, I'm here. I just would sit there and smile to myself and be like, okay, let's go. And then, and it was just so fun to finally get to some of these moments where that I'd been waiting to tell for literal years at this point, right? And so I think book two has several of those scenes, several of those big moments that I was excited to get to as we sort of start to like really blow up some of the things that we've set up, I think, in, in terms of telling the stories as I, as I want to tell it. So yeah, book two was a big sort of cathartic experience for me, I think, in, in certain moments. And I did hear a couple people asking, feel free to turn it down. A couple people in the chat were like, can we hear anything about book three? <laughs> Ah, <laughs> well, you know what? <clears throat> I don't know that I can. Uh, I don't know that I can announce it quite yet. I can say that we. This is the first time I'll say this. It's not an actual specific thing, but we do have a title for book three. So a title has been locked in at the publisher. Uh, so it'll be. You know, again, I'm not sure I can say it yet. So I, I just will be cautious about that. But you're the first to hear that a title has been selected. It is ready to go at some point. And what can I tell you about book three? Things contrary to all 
possible expectation, things for Tao do not necessarily get better. <laughs> oh, whoa. <laughs> whoa. <laughs> I mean, I, I can see. Um, but see. no, uh, things get, the world expands a lot in book three. Uh, the trick of book two is that I had to, I, I really needed to handle some of the things that were happening with the internal politics of the Omehi so that we could get to where we're going before we hit the actual end of the story as it needs to be told. And so the world expands pretty dramatically in book three and then leading into book four. So I think that a lot of people who are maybe really excited about seeing more of the of the actual world and how it all works as well, will will get that in what's to come. People are having crying emojis in the chat. <laughs> oh, it's, no. it's, it's like you just did breaking news. They're excited. <laughs> Roses. <laughs> I thought you were going to say something like, yes, I can give you answers. The, the, uh, the first word in the title is the, and the third word is of. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. How, how did you know? <laughs> I mean, I am, I've been in this business for a while. <laughs> oh, um, man. Uh, cool. I, I think we're about time for our lightning round. This is when we actually ask you questions that are not related to your work or your or Soliet. It's just kind of uh, questions to kind of, you know, get to know you better. So uh, for the lightning round, just whatever comes to mind. And I'm forgetting what my lightning round questions are. Oh, yeah, here we go. So uh, if I said, hey, Evan, uh, let me get you something to drink. Uh, what would be your beverage of choice right now? Mm, if it's early in the day, probably a coffee. It's late in the evening, probably Woodford Reserve, which is a wonderful little yes. bourbon. Oh, you, yeah, excellent. Okay. This is a big bourbon place, and a lot oh, of our guests like also that. tend to be bourbon drinkers. <laughs> I, I think that I think Woodford Reserve is probably just barely good enough for Captain Macbeth because she tends to really be on the higher end of stuff, but mm. I'm right there with you. Absolutely. I love it. I, I like it. It's it's just got that kind of sweetness, goes down smooth, solid. I think our After Dark logo that we've made for our fundraiser, the bottle in there is based on a Woodford Reserve oh, bottle. Yeah, yeah they're, <laughs> they're, very, they're very nice bottles too. They do a good packaging job. Yeah. Now, now apparently I, Woodford Reserve, like hire me. Apparently I'm just doing the whole thing. I, I mean, yeah, so. we... We actually, and this is this is very true. The the third oldest brewery in America is, is uh, Stevens Point Brewery, mm-hmm. and they actually did just give us some sponsorship for our fundraiser. So oh wow, excellent! Congratulations! It's, it's point so here. random. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's the town we are in, but it's yeah, just exactly. such a, um, sponsored by Woodward Reserve. Yeah, love it, love it. <laughs> you mentioned that you've been, you know, the things you've been doing to kind of cope with all the pandemic stuff. Is there a particular favorite meal that you've been finding? Like, you know, you're like, oh, this is definitely a night when I need to have some, something. What's your favorite food there? Or comfort favorite food, I guess. Comfort food. You know what? Um, one of the things I do is, is a, a penne pasta in a, a sort of like a, in a meat sauce, a red meat sauce with like a, kind of like a, how do I explain this? With sausage, basically. It's like a penne pasta with sausage. And it's a, like barbecued sausage. And it's just, it's just, it's just comfort food. It's like, it's almost uncomfortably heavy, but not quite. And you can just sit there and enjoy it. And I don't know. I, I really, enjoy, I really like that. So that's that's a big one for me. I think, yeah. And that's uh, the family likes it too. So when I make that, they they're good with it. So that's always good if they'll actually eat what I make. Okay. Yeah, people ask me for the recipe. <laughs> Maybe in the next newsletter. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. I gotta tell you, I, uh, Evan is in Toronto. For those who didn't didn't mm-hmm. know, and uh, Toronto is where I had my first poutine for the first time. Mm. So good. And recently I tried ordering some poutine here in Stevens Point. And it's not the same. No, <laughs> no, no it's, great not. It's, it's a hard thing to get right. And you got to get really those is. cheese, cheese, cheese curves just right. 
I'm not um, saying where is, I got it from, but <laughs> another lightning round question. Okay, so you turn on Netflix. What is a show that if you haven't been able to engage lately, what is like a one you'd recommend a good comfort show, something you go back to? A good comfort show. That's a tough one. Oh, okay. Here we go. I watched all of um, Avatar The Last Airbender with my son and that (sighs) Avatar The Last Airbender is like, that is brilliant level storytelling. I don't even know how they did that. It is a kid's show that I can go back to and watch and it is just, it is compelling. It is well-told story. It is just, it is so good. A thing that I'm watching right now with my son is every Friday we, we sit there, we flip on The Mandalorian. That's, I guess that's Disney as opposed to Netflix. But we flip on The Mandalorian and I'm very much enjoying the sort of, the opportunity to sort of sit and settle into new, uh, new places in the expanded sort of Star Wars universe and really get a chance to see the types of things that would be literally a half second in the back shot of one, you know, of, of the movies becomes like the sort of the set place or the scene for an entire episode. So that's been very, very cool for me. And my son, I think, is absolutely enjoying it. So yeah, I've tried The Last Airbender, Mandalorian, easy watches, fun watches. <laughs> so, so let's say that unfortunately winter hits hard and powers out uh-huh. and all you got to, you to do is uh, read a book. Is there a, a book that you would go to? Like, you know, this is my, this is the one that I go to for, you know, I know I'm going to enjoy reading this one. Mm. A book that I very much enjoyed and sort of showed me just how much we we can do in, in fantasy might be The Lions of Al-Rasan by Guy Gabriel oh, Kay. Gabriel Kay, yes. Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant piece of epic fantasy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's there's amazing. A, there's a writing trick in there that he did. I, I'm mm. pretty sure it's that one. But it's where you're reading along and suddenly this character, they, it says, you know, he didn't name the character, but someone dies. Mm. And you're like, oh, I think I know who that is. And then that person who you thought it was shows up and says, oh, my God, there's someone dead. And you're like, oh, well, if it's not that person dead, it must be this other character. And then that person shows up. <laughs> and, and he does this, like, for three or four beats. And I'm just like, come on, guy. You know, this, is, <laughs> this, is, this is just playing with my brain. Mm-hmm. Sorry. You just, that, that particular book I, I share with you on that. So, that yeah, idea. no, that, uh, that's a, it's a great, great novel. And, uh, and yeah, and it just feels... It feels poetic and, and, and awesome. Oh, and I'll quickly mention Joe Abercrombie's The Heroes. If you want to talk yes. about fight scenes and, and sort of getting into a feel of war. And, and it, it's The Heroes is this book about a, a battle that takes place over three days. And man, does he drag you. You feel it's a battle. You feel like you've been taken through an entire war. And it's just his writing style is so compelling, so packed full, like just chock full of little nuggets of, of, mo- of little nuggets of moments that feel like he's giving you absolute truth about something. And again, yeah. truth being very subjective in many ways, but just little moments that make you go, ah. And so, yeah, The Heroes is a solid, solid book. Oh, and if you're out here right now listening, maybe hop into the Poppy War series by R.F. Kuang because The Burning God comes out today. That is book three in that series. The series is absolutely completed right now. So, yeah. Nice. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. So how about how about a little magic? Let's say I, I have a magic wand that looks like a <laughs> pen. And I can wave this wand and anybody, fictional, real, alive, you know, alive now, alive in the past, can appear to sit down and have coffee with you. Who would you like to have manifest? Like, who do you wish you could sit and talk to? Hmm, that's a tough one. I'm thinking, without giving too long an answer, I guess I'll say at this point in my life, I'd probably take my dad and uh, mm-hmm. have, a, have a conversation with him again. You know what I mean? That would be a great chance to have a, have a coffee and sort of, yeah, and do that. So that's that would probably be my answer at this point, yeah. That's totally fair, yeah, absolutely. That's uh, a nice one. 
usually people pick like a really famous person, but it's <laughs> nice to think that as as we grow older, we'll we'll miss our parents. Right. <laughs> <laughs> These days, it can be you know anybody in real life. As long oh, as they, that's that's yeah. also a good point. Yes, it's yeah, uh, kind of hard to see very many people. Yeah. <laughs> and the last lightning round question is: What is something in your room or in your house that people would be surprised was there? <laughs> I don't even know. I'm trying to think. What was that? something in my house that people would be surprised is there? Yeah. The thing that I that I use quite a bit at my writing desk that's quite that's pretty awesome and I don't know how many writing desks have them. I have a handy little wooden back scratcher. When you're really stuck on a plot point, you just sit there, you break that thing out, and you just kind of give her a go. And uh, <laughs> that's perfect. That's Thank exactly you. what this question is meant to do. It's, it's right over there. I <laughs> <laughs> now you guys know as you're flipping through the pages yeah. <laughs> of dragons yeah. that wow, backstretcher got in the backstretcher moment yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> awesome well so we are really glad to have you thank you for all that you, all that you do and working to make you know a little bit of the world a better place I really appreciate being able to be a part of this in some very, very small way, but just being able to be here and present today means a lot to me. And so thank you for that as well. Thank oh, you. thank you. You're a wonderful guest. It's been really nice. <laughs> thank you. Uh, Zay's going to take us out talking about hanging out with people. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> I don't know any part of this. <laughs> all right. All right. Well, we just want to tell everybody know we're here every Tuesday. We love to hang out with a couple of geeks. It could be me and Zay or Zay and Jamie or Jamie and me or whoever. And we love having you here. And we try and, you know, have a little fun things to talk about. Great guests like Evan. Thank you so much for being here. If you have somebody that you would like to have us reach out to and interview, we'd love to hear about them. And um, remember that you can also always check out worldbuildersmarket.com for common, unique, epic items. And that's, there's commas in there, just so you know, common, unique, epic. <laughs> common, unique, or even epic level items, autographed books, tabletop games, and things like that. And uh, Zay, you want to talk about how people can ask us questions, compliments, and stuff like that? Yeah, email questions at worldbuilders.org, which is not Zay anymore. Oh, thank God. No, it's, I love hearing from you guys. And I do go in there every once in a while, but questions at worldbuilders.org, as it's always been, just to let you know, Evan, there's a lot of love coming from this chat. People are saying thank you. That was, has been really nice to uh, hear you chat about Rage of Dragons and also other stuff. And Evan, at the end of every every broadcast, because we're not always sure when we, there's a time lag between the chat and here, we have a, a special word or a phrase that we put out there that sounds kind of weird. And, and it's going to sound weird to you. It comes from a, a saying that actually was Latin called uh, dum vivimus, vivim, vivimus, which is while we live, let us live. However, we can't have it be the same every time because then people just type it in the minute I say we're about to do this. So... We have a special one just for you. And so we will say that today's thing is the rage of moose. <laughs> see what happens. That could be book five, book five if you want. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to World Builders Weekly, everyone. Take care of yourselves and take care of the people you love. Mm -hmm.